Hi there. Welcome to episode 32 of Snippets. I'm Dr. Anita Priya, resident of Shankar Netralaya. Today we have with us Dr. S Ambika, head of neuroophthalmology department, Shankar Netralaya. Thank you so much ma'am for taking time off to speak to us about the do's and don'ts of unexplained vision loss. Hi friends. Thank you Dr. Anita. Thank you Dr. Netralaya Snippets team for having me in this program. Well, it's a nice opportunity to discuss with one of the common challenging neuroophthalmic disorders which a neuroophthalmologist would encounter in the day-to-day practice, unexplained vision loss. So in this uh, program, we are going to listen what are the common do's and don'ts and probably Dr. Anita will come up with few questions which she may start doing right away. Yes, ma'am, that will be great. As clinicians, we often encounter patients with unexplained vision loss. What do you think are the red flag signs and symptoms that we should be looking out for? Fine. Unexplained vision loss, when you call unexplained, it means that the patient has presented with a complaint of vision loss, but you end up seeing a normal anterior and posterior segment of the eye. An unexplained vision loss can be monocular, can be binocular, it can be a total loss or it can be a partial loss. The only big red flag, I would say, in an unexplained vision loss is the patient's symptomatology is disproportionate to the signs and findings you would end up looking in the eye. So the history taking is the key in any neuroophthalmic disorder and so is in an unexplained vision loss. Differentiating whether the patient had noticed the vision loss accidentally or it has started only at that time is very important for you to differentiate whether the condition was accidentally noted or it's pre-existing. So be careful when you're dealing with an unexplained vision loss because it is only in this group you have functional vision loss, which means malingerous do prevail in this group only. And any patient with a history of an emotional component along with the onset of vision loss, like a sadness, you just watch out for a history of trauma violence which may be domestic or a, even a simple attack with a mob. It can cause sometimes malingering overlay in a condition which makes the patient have an unexplained vision loss which may be an exaggeration at sad times. So watch out for a normal fundus and be careful when dealing with hysteric blindness and a malingerous who also prevail in the same group. Tagging on from your answers ma'am, When we are assessing patients with unexplained vision loss, is there any protocol which we can follow to ensure that nothing is missed? As I had mentioned earlier, always a detailed good history taking is the most important uh, instrument which you can use in the normal examination of a patient. But explore the history of the vision loss onset, associated signs and symptomatology. Take a detailed nature of the vision loss. It can be acute, it can be progressive, it can be a gradual in onset. And most important, ask for the associated symptoms like pain, headache, metamorphopsias. And differentiate from the other retinal symptoms like distortion and micropsia, macropsia, etc. Because these history will give you a clue what type of condition we are dealing with. And if it's an acute, painful vision loss, invariably it is an inflammation etiology. And if a patient complains of a painless, sudden loss, it can be ischemic. If it is going to be a progressive, gradual loss of vision, it can be compressive, toxic in etiology. 
and always ask for any systemic diseases association like diabetes, mellitus and hypertension, thyroid disorders, tuberculosis, malignancy, radiation therapy, recent any surgery or medications which the patient was on. And most importantly in our country, just watch out for any history of anti-tubercular treatment because ethambutol toxicity and causing an optic neuropathy is most commonly missed in the general ophthalmic practice. And with the increasing incidence of all these malignancies and oncology treatment, there are higher incidence of chemotherapeutic toxicity because most commonly I do encounter patients who are having a previous history of any chemotherapy and coming with an unexplained vision loss is also going up in our day-to-day practice. So do a stepwise examination, good refraction, perform all optic nerve function tests like vision check, color vision and most important pupillary examination, detailed anterior and posterior segment examination of the eye. If the vision loss is subacute and sometimes it can be a monocular involvement, invariably you will see a relative afferent pupillary defect. But if you see a vision loss which is binocular, sometimes the pupil will be sluggishly reacting to light. But remember there can be a normal pupil normal fundus but still have a profound vision loss as you see in case of a cortical blindness. Dilated fundus examination is quite vital. It is mandatory to check if the vision loss severity is correlating with the optic disc or the macular appearance. Sometimes visual field loss may be significant in spite of having a near normal fundus. So you have to always ask for a visual field assessment because if there is a significant peripheral field loss, a patient can still end up have a normal vision. In your vast experience, what is the spectrum of conditions that you have encountered presenting with unexplained vision loss and would you share some interesting presentation for the benefit of our listeners? In neuro-ophthalmology, if at all you would say as an unexplained vision loss, which is quite a nightmare, is a retrobulbar neuritis. Because you ought not miss a retrobulbar neuritis, which is catastrophic in a condition and it can be a preventable blindness. So you always look for retrovalbar neuritis. Sometimes you would end up seeing optic neuritis also being missed with subtle disc findings. And next is cortical blindness. I would uh, like to say there was an interesting story of an elderly couple. The husband said the wife had a vision complaint. She was not seeing clearly. So she got, got him cataract surgery done. But after the cataract surgery also, the husband said that she's not able to pour the coffee in the cup. Well, she said that, no, I can see the cup but I can see the cup and pour it only if I tilt my head. So she had a head scanning to do that, which itself gives you a clue that it was not the cataract which is causing her problem and it was nothing but a posterior cerebral artery, in fact, causing a hemianopia. So you have to be very careful when you're planning a cataract surgery. In elderly patients, rule out a cortical area involvement. So that patient had a posterior cerebral artery infarct which resulted in a homonymous hemianopia and that history was more suggestive of a head scanning which the patient has already developed to overcome her disorder. So cortical blindness, if it is going to be a bilateral PCA infarct, it can cause a profound drop in vision. So when you see the patient, the patient may have only cataract But if you're not correlating the severity of the vision with the cataract, you may end up operating the patient, but you will not have a good visual recovery. So watch out for cortical blindness because that's one thing which is getting commonly missed in the general ophthalmology practice. Apart from that, 
amblyopia, microtropia, as I had already mentioned, drug toxicity, ethambutol toxicity, chloroquine, and uh, sometimes amiodarone can also be causing an optic neuropathy and increased use of chemotherapeutic drugs like imatinib and desatinib, you would end up having a toxic optic neuropathy. And compressive optic neuropathies like cellar, paracellar masses, they can cause a gradual progressive drop in vision. And if you just miss that subtle temporal pallor which they produce and the significant visual field loss, if you have not done a visual fields, you will miss it. You may tend to miss these intracranial space occupying lesions. And last but not least, the paraneoplastic optic neuropathies and the autoimmune optic neuropathies, which you need a lot of clinical evaluation and expertise to overcome these disorders. But generally, they tend to be overlooked in the ophthalmology practice. Thank you so much, ma'am. I'm sure our listeners would really appreciate you sharing your experience with us. In your opinion, what are the most optimal investigations and the role of neuroimaging when dealing with a patient with unexplained vision loss? Detailed ocular examination, which includes an optic nerve function test, anterior segment and posterior segment fundus evaluation, and a visual field examination. Nowadays, we have this automated visual field analyzer, which is equally good and it is more reproducible. And it has literally taken over the visual field examination technique to the next level. And in neuroophthalmology, we always recommend a central 30-2 program because most of the neuroophthalmic field effects do affect the central fields. But you have to be careful. Sometimes you may require a peripheral visual field assessment also, which may be difficult with a 30-2 program. But unfortunately, the latest Humphrey programs doesn't have that much of peripheral assessment as compared to our conventional Goldman perimetry because you can have sometimes that peripheral temporal crescent, a trachoid scotomas, which all can happen in the periphery, but they also do exist. So a visual field examination is a gold standard, any optic neuropathy and in an unexplained vision loss. Next to that, you can use the electrophysiological test. VEP, ERG, full field, multifocal or a pattern ERG. All of them does have their own specific roles. If you're going to ask for a VEP, most of the times when you see a normal fundus, you wanted to know whether the optic pathway dysfunction is existing, you can ask for a VEP. But VEP can be sometimes also fooled by malingerers because if they intentionally defocus, you will not get a normal VEP waveform. And a delayed latency of the P wave, reduced amplitude, all of them will have some amount of implication in the type of the vision loss what you're dealing with. Sometimes the delayed latency is mostly seen in inflammation and reduced amplitude and mostly in ischemic optic neuropathies. If it is going to be a ERG, the full field ERG will give you an idea of the underlying retinal disorders. If it is going to be a multifocal ERG, it can help you differentiating whether the type of central defects what you're dealing is it associated with macula or an optic nerve cause. And off late, we have OCT, which has revolutionized our ophthalmic investigations, can help you decipher the retinal nerve fiber layer thickening as well as the ganglion cell layer thickening. Because these all will give you the age of the optic neuropathy. If you have a chronic optic neuropathy, not only a disc pallor, but a significant ganglion cell loss will help you in identifying the age of the disease. 
And if you have a patient claiming to have a profound drop and have a normal retinal nerve fiber layer and a GCL, sometimes it can give you an additional clue along with the other clinical investigations that he may be malingering. Coming to the neuroimaging, I would prefer an MRI brain in orbit with a proper sequencing and proper cut with a fat suppression imaging. Here's a bit of a left field question for you, ma'am. How do you go about differentiating between hysterical blindness and malingering? Well, that's a very smart question. Basically, both of them claim an unexplained vision loss. So, they all come under the group of psychosomatic disorder. Malingerers are the group of people who consciously do what they are claiming to have a problem. So, the vision loss can be exaggerated or simulated with a non-existent disease. But hysterical blindness patients, usually they do it subconsciously, unlike the malingerous. And the malingerous will have an emotionally driven purpose for their complaints, be it like an unexplained vision loss. Say, for example, it can be to escape a duty, uh, resume in case of a military posting. It can be a benefit claim, post-trauma compensation. Or a hysterical blindness patients usually will have a sadness quotient along with their symptoms and most of them will be amenable to treatment. As I said, you need a detailed psychological assessment for both the group of patients and you have to outsmart them by various testings. And in fact, malingerers can be easily nabbed because they can walk into your room with sunglasses. They will avoid an eye contact directly with you when you're examining and sometimes they may bump into objects but they will not fall and sometimes they may not be able to do simple tactile cues also which you are asked to do like write or put a signature on a paper simple things also they will pretend as if they are not able to perform because these can be done by patients who have even profound visual loss just as a add on to the previous question could you kindly take us through some of the specific questions and investigations that we can ask and do to identify a patient who is malingering? Well, I think then it will need an entire episode of snippet for you for this question. Let me just give few tests which you can perform. As I said, you can pin a patient box into your room with the behavior how the patient is taking inside your room. So a menace reflex where you can just blow your hand with force in front of the patient accidentally and if the patient has at least some amount of vision, he will be taken aback and there'll be a reflex moment, what you can see in the eye. And you can even do an odd facial expression. If a patient is claiming to have bilateral poor visual loss and you do some facial expression in front of him, he will definitely be fraction of a moment. He will look at you during the entire moment of what you make. And as I said, ask them to sign their name on a paper. You can just point a place on the paper and ask them to sign. Even a blind patient can do their signature without any problem, but a malingerer will refuse. They will stumble. And you keep a huge mirror in front of a patient who is claiming to have a bilateral poor vision. You keep rocking that mirror in front of him. If you have a normal vision, it's very difficult for you to stay away out of that mirror. There will be a momentary focus and they will be looking at the mirror at least during the entire moment at one point of time. So that itself will give you a clue that it is not a organic vision loss. Or you can use a pinhole test if there's going to be a monocular vision loss claim where you can put in the glasses, you can put one side a pinhole 
and in the pinhole you can put it on the side where he claims to have poor vision loss and the other normal side you can block it with a higher glasses or even a black patch or something like that so the patient without their knowledge they will see through the pinhole and start reading in the eye which they claim to have a dropped vision and sometimes you can do a duvain's test where you will put a high prism in front of the so called good eye and for a moment if he is going to have a normal vision in that eye he will stumble and he will not be able to read beyond so depending on which eye he has it's a monocular loss or a binocular loss depending on that you have different types of tests which are available to pin down these malingerers as simple as an okay and drum if you have a okay and stripe or a okay and drum you can rotate vertically in front of a patient who has claims to have poor vision they will be able to follow the stripes because the kids will do come up and you will start noticing a okay and you can generate that in a patient who is having a normal visual acuity and the best part is doing a visual fields in a malingerer if you ask a i mean malingerer to do a visual field at different distance from the visual field chart normally you will start widening the fields as you go out away from the visual field chart but this may not happen in a malingerer the malingerer will show you a tubular fields which is classically described pattern of a functional visual loss what are your take home message for our listeners ma'am okay so in conclusion let me tell the do's and don'ts of unexplained vision loss first we will go for the do's do listen to your patient do a stepwise approach of all optic nerve function assessment do watch for atypical presentations of normal entities and ocular disorders do a dilated fundus examination and do ask only specific investigations and never a blanket of test and do remember this is the group of unexplained vision loss where you will encounter functional visual loss patients also and coming to the don'ts don't forget to get a proper history of the systemic illness and don't miss a general examination and watch out for their behavior as they enter into your clinic and don't miss a pupillary examination don't forget that normal pupil can still have a profound vision loss due to cortical blindness and don't forget to document all the findings and remember there are a lot of medical legal pitfalls in this particular group of visual disorders and i think i take this opportunity to thank dr anita and the snippets team for having me here thank you it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you ma'am thank you so much for an informative session that i'm certain will be beneficial to all our listeners to all those listening thank you so much for joining us here today with ambika ma'am i look forward to meeting you on another episode of snippets Thank you.